Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. You too, Auditorium too. thank you for being here. And if you are watching online, thank you for joining us there. If you are here and you are visiting with us, we really, really appreciate you checking us out. I promise we're not uh, too weird, maybe a little. Uh, but uh, if you do stick around, we also want you to know a couple things, that we are uh, broken people trying to trust God for life and forgiveness and understanding and wisdom. And what we want to be in all of these things is we want to be a community of grace that's pursuing life and mission with Jesus. That's what we want to be. And if you want to know more about us, please go stop by our Welcome Center <clears throat> in the commons over here near Auditorium One, and we have a team there that would love to serve you. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you probably know that we are currently studying our way through the New Testament book of John. It is the fourth book in the New Testament, and John tells the Jesus story, and he says that the Jesus story is God's plan to bring grace and truth and salvation to a needy humanity. <coughs> and currently, in this story, we are listening in on Jesus' prayer right before he is arrested and he goes to the cross. And in this prayer, he's pouring out his heart to his Father. He's praying for people, but not just people in general. He's praying for his people, that's us, that we would have a renewed sense of the things that we just sang about, that we would have a renewed sense of unity and mission and holiness, and we've been soaking in these words for a while because of how much theology and emotion and purpose is in them. So today we're gonna go one more round on John 17. So if you wanna go ahead and get there in your Bible, that will be good, great, wonderful. Take your time, hurry up. John chapter 17, and we will get there in a few minutes, I promise. Now, <clears throat> as you are finding your way there, I, I wanna talk for a few minutes just about one of my favorite things that I know everybody loves to talk about. There's always hot gossip about this. It's just plastered all over social media. It's all the rage these days. It is just dwarfing TikTok and popularity. Let's just talk a little bit, just a little bit, um, about epistemology. Now, uh, some of you think I just said a half cuss word in church. Um, Nine of you know what I'm talking about, and eight of the nine don't care at all. So what's epistemology? Thank you so much for asking. Epistemology is a philosophy discussion about how we know things. Epistemology considers the sources and the reliability and the origin of knowledge. It's, epistemology is this kind of funny conversation about the relationship between perception and certainty and experience. It's a playground for your brain. It's the, hot, the hottest of topics. All the kids are digging it right now, I promise you. So let me just give you a small example. How do you know, how do you know that you were born in September? Like, did you have consciousness at the time? You remember like exiting your mother, looking down at your prenatal watch and going, ha, right on time. Like, is it, no, that didn't happen. Somebody, you ready? Somebody twisted your arm and your brain and convinced you that you were born in September, right? Somebody did that. And, and watch this. The question is, how reliable are the sources that convinced you of that? And why do you trust them? Because watch this, every act of knowing is also an act of trust in some way. Here's what I need you to think about. We do epistemology every single day without thinking about epistemology. I'll give you some more examples. You're in school. I, I know the answer to this question. I got it, I got it. I know I'll get to the gas station on time. 
I, li- I know the Gamecocks will win. <laughs> I, hey, 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 I know, hey, I, dude, I don't care what you say. I don't care who you talk to. I know she likes me. I know I'm gonna get the job. I know I'm right. I know he's wrong. Good grief. I know that for sure. I know that, <clears throat> I, know that I can have self-control this time. I, I mean, I know that they, they're not gonna cheat on me. I, I know it, they just don't understand. I, I know I won't get caught. I'm not worried about it. But what if you didn't get the question right and you didn't get the job and you did get caught? Guess what that means? That means the realities and patterns upon which you based your knowledge, they're all faulty. <clears throat> and you're like, oh, that's kind of deep. Well, just live long enough. The things that you knew were, hey, I'm 15 years old, this is true. When you're 45, you're like, goodness, what was I thinking, right? <laughs> all you have to do is live, live a little bit and you'll know that this is the case. A great example of this today is uh, the news. And I'm not picking on any team here. If you knew how little I watched the news, you'd be like, you should probably watch the news more. I'm, <clears throat> so I'm not out to, to get anybody. I'm just saying that the news today versus the news 50 or 60 years ago is a different kind of philosophy. Here's what I mean. <clears throat> People often born before 1970 go, but the news, that's where we get the facts, you know? And then people born after 1990 go, well, they're all lying. Just give me Instagram and I'll be good. Just to shut up, like, right? That's, that's what happens. And here's why. <clears throat> 50 or so years ago, the news was largely about information. It gave you the facts of what happened that day and it showed you a grainy video clip of it, right? But, but in my mind, that's pretty decent epistemological dependability. But today, the news can be far more interpretation than information. There's more proposed information out there than we know what to do with, and what we do with it usually is that we pick and choose from all of the digital information that we want so that we can help reaffirm our preferences. And then when the different news teams do show you the same clip, they often are quick to say that it means two very different things, right? So in terms of media, Journalism has often given way to agenda pushing, and in terms of epistemology, our anger is rising because our certainty of knowledge is being threatened, and we don't like it one single bit. So Jim, are you saying that we're living in the matrix, and we can't trust what we see, and we can't have any assurance about anything that's happening in the world, and that knowledge is a total illusion? No, 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 not at all. What I am saying, though, is that we should be examining the sources of our knowledge. We should be critical and not cynical. Cynical means you don't like it no matter what. Critical means you should have, like, epistemological curiosity. If we're going to be thoughtful and faithful knowers, we need the confidence that comes from patient inspection, not three and a half Google searches, right? To know things deeply takes time, and this begins with the admission that we can't, and we won't, and we don't get to know all that we want to know. And this is kind of like one of the reasons why I really enjoy epistemology is because it serves up the fattest pieces of, of humble pie, like right on your plate, like right up in your business. Let me just put it a really simple way for you that you can relate to every single day. Most of the time, we think that we are in the know, and so we are quick to judge other people's motives and quick to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But if you believe in the gospel of Jesus, a grace-based epistemology should make us ask questions about our own motives and be quick to give other people the benefit of the doubt, right? 
Also, I can't not do book commercials. I'm so sorry. I know there might be two and a half of you who are nerdy and you find this thing intriguing, so you want to read more about it. If you want to do that, I suggest Esther Meek's book, Longing to Know, A Philosophy of Knowledge for Ordinary People. She's awesome. She loves Jesus. She's a Bible thumper. She's a philosophy professor at Geneva Presbyterian College in Pennsylvania. And she writes about all this stuff in really accessible ways. And I read this book 15 years ago, and I probably still think about it every other week. It was that influential for my faith and my life. So if that's something you want to explore, that's an excellent read. Okay, if you're still with me after wading through epistemology, congratulations. I'm well aware that not everybody thinks it is as fun as I do, and I hope we can um, still be friends. But here's, here's why we did that. <clears throat> Because one of the most simple, one of the plainest human questions that overshadows all the other kinds of knowing that we mention, and it comes in different forms, is just simply, how can I know God, right? Or to go all like Leo DiCaprio inception on it, how can I know that I know God? We're all aching for clarity on just that thing. That's actually chapter one in in Esther Meek's book, How Can I Know God? And the practical epistemology that we do every day without realizing it is one thing, but this spiritual dimension of epistemology is another thing altogether because it seems that there might be eternity on the line. When I often hear people go, "Ah, there's, there's no God or heaven or hell or sin or salvation, that's just stuff people make up to deal with their own issues. When I hear that, that's a little, a little scary to me because When you consider history and humanity and nature and art and beauty and morality and music and marriage and sex and community and joy and justice and freedom and truth and love and creativity and all these million more things, the burden of proof is not on those who believe in God. Rather, it seems to be on those who dismissively go, I know there's no God. But even still, Watch this, even for those of us who do believe in a good God, the question is just as poignant. What's he like? And when I get to know him, how do I know that that's what he's like? What does it mean to know God? In what ways can I experience him? How can I get to know his character, his creativity, his love, his presence? These questions are far, far more significant than the little tide pools of epistemology that we usually splash around in. This might even be the most basic human question. What does it mean to know God? That's our begging question for today and maybe even for the rest of our lives. Now, it is impossible to definitively and totally land the plane on this and answer the whole question today, but it's, it's also irresponsible not to scratch at it just a little bit especially because we've been studying John 17, and there is a single line at the beginning of Jesus' prayer that points us in the right direction on these things. And that single line is John chapter 17, verse three. John chapter 17, verse three. And this morning for our scripture reading, since we're only, we're only gonna meditate on one verse, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna have a little fun with it. We're gonna put the verse up on the screen and we're gonna read it four times. So please don't be too cool for this. The first time I'm gonna read it, second time is just the ladies, the third time is just the fellas, and the fourth time is an all swim, it's an all skate, everybody's gonna read along together. This is a team effort, so the more the merrier. All right, here we go, me, ladies, fellas, everybody. Here we go, John 17, three, up on the screens. This is eternal life that they know you, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Ladies, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Fellas, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Everybody, really loud. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, <clears throat> Jesus is praying here, okay? He's not like, I'm going to engage myself in an abstract philosophical discussion, right? He's not doing that. He's praying. But the content of his prayer in this line attacks our deepest epistemological longings. <clears throat> He's praying about, and what our, this prayer suggests is an answer to our question, what does it mean to know God? And so we should try to wring this thing out just a little bit. Also, some of you uh, might be confused why we're still in John 17 and why we're finishing John 17 by going back to the beginning of it. <clears throat> well, uh, when Charlie and I were planning all of this out back in September, we thought it would be really fun if John's resurrection passage ended up perfectly on Easter. We thought that would be cool. And we looked at each other and we said, well, that means we're gonna have to preach 174 messages in John 17. And we were like, hey, sounds great. That sounds absolutely fine. So why are we finishing John 17 by going back to the beginning? Thank you for asking because this verse three is a way to encapsulate a lot of what Jesus is praying about. And you'll see that as we think about it. But also do this. Look at the last line of John 17, verse 26. Jesus says, Father, I made known your name to them. It's the same Greek word, the knowing. And I'll keep making it known to them so that divine love would be in them. Meaning Jesus, his entire prayer is bookended with ideas about knowing God. And so this is utterly crucial to one, understanding this prayer, but two, understanding life with God. So here's what we're gonna do for our verse, for John 17, three. We're gonna look at three parts of it. First part's gonna be the eternal life part. Then we're gonna look at the knowing part. And then we're gonna look at who should be known, the Father and the Son. And I, thinking about these three ideas in this verse uh, will give us, I hope, I pray that it gives us some confidence as we consider what it means to know God. First off, <clears throat> this is eternal life. What is meant by the phrase eternal life? Thanks for asking. Let's just go ahead and say what it doesn't mean. <clears throat> this is not simply a statement about time. This doesn't mean an ongoing succession of moments without interruption, because if you think that's the definition, it can get boring real, real fast, and life with God is not meant to be that, both in this life and the life to come. <clears throat> Speaking of that, this also does not mean going to heaven when you die. Um, sorry to be weird and disappoint and throw a pastor bomb and then run away. That phrase is nowhere in the Bible, okay? That going to heaven when you die, that phraseology does not exist in scripture. <clears throat> the point of the Bible is not that we should leave earth because it's icky, bad, gross, and evil. The point of the Bible is that because earth is icky, bad, gross, and evil, God brought heaven to earth in Jesus. The story of the Bible is this. God made heaven and earth to be together like two twin halves of one reality. That's the first verse. <clears throat> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But because of our sin and rebellion, us thinking that we can do life on our own apart from God, humanity was separated from him. 
And throughout scripture, humanity's space is called earth and God's space is called heaven. And in the Old Testament, God promised that that separation would not always be so, but that one day heaven would come to earth and they would be one again. Watch this. So when we get to the book of John and we see the phrase eternal life 17 times, it's talking about how heaven has come to earth and it's begun to overlap in Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Now, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew uses the phrase the kingdom of heaven about 30 times to talk about the same reality. But here in John, it is eternal life. Also, eternal life is not just about like, quote unquote, your spiritual life that's mystically in your heart by faith. Yes, eternal life is first and foremost about um, how you relate to God, and we're gonna talk about that. But that also includes, it's never separated from, in the Bible, it's never separated from how you love your neighbor and how you learn to care about what God cares about. It's the coming together of heaven and earth. There's physicality. We're, we're meant to live, <clears throat> live out this life in a physical space. And the future vision of the Bible is that God's people will reign with him in partnership on this planet restored, rejuvenated, and redeemed with God's perfect presence, heaven and earth one. And that's when God's space and humanity's space are finally married to each other in the last two chapters of Revelation. That's where this idea of eternal life is headed. <coughs> now, there might be some of you that were like, okay, what did you just say? You just lost me for a little bit and all that, so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna boil it down really simply for you. In the book of John, Eternal life just means this. It means life the way that God intended. Life the way that God wanted it for his people and himself. And that's how he set it up in Genesis. Eternal life means life the way that God intended, available right now. Not like, okay, one day, sweet by and by when I die. Available now and no expiration date on it. Eternal life in John means life the way that God designed it, both now and forever, and all 17 times that it is used, that phrase, eternal life, in John, part of this definition is in play. <clears throat> and guess what this includes? It means everything that you've ever desired, everything you've ever wanted, emotionally, relationally, financially, politically, physically, spiritually, epistemologically, all the things that you want the most that keep you up at night, your deepest longings to know things truly, the sum of all of those things and more is eternal life. Ecclesiastes 3 says God has put eternity in humanity's hearts. Here, I'm just gonna bring it even more down into real life. What I'm saying is that when an addict is looking for a fix, he's looking to feel eternal life. When an alcoholic needs a drink, she, she's thirsty for eternal life. When pornography feels like a need, it is a longing for the intimacy of eternal life. When a legalist is out judging everybody but themselves, they're aching for eternal life. When a people pleaser is out and just gossiping about everybody else, they're craving eternal life. If you add up everything you want, everything you're pursuing, everything you're trying to make happen on your own, at the very bottom of it all is this idea of eternal life. And every single one of us, in our own way, we try to do real life on our own apart from God. That is how the Bible defines sin. 
But God's love is way too kind and way too strong to watch us amuse ourselves to death in vain efforts. This is why heaven has come to earth, eternal life, life the way God intended. So when Jesus is praying his guts out here in John 17, he's basically saying, Father, I want them so badly to experience the life that you want for them, life the way that you set it up. That is eternal life. Okay, that's the eternal life part. Now let's talk about the knowing part. This is eternal life that they know. So Jesus is praying that we would experience the life of heaven come to earth and that we would do so, you ready? We, heaven's here on earth? You would think that it requires this big thing to do to experience He's saying heaven has come to earth and he wants us to experience that by an act of knowing. All right, it does feel a little anticlimactic, but that's why we have to make an important distinction here. <clears throat> this is where our epistemology discussion is gonna dovetail quite nicely. Our modern definitions of the word know are about factual data, all right? I wish I could do like a, a side project about how in the Enlightenment in the 1700s in the West, our now definition of knowing things because of the scientific method, blah, 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 et cetera, became observable stats. Now, <clears throat> here's what I mean. I know that Roberto Clemente played for the Pittsburgh Pirates his entire life and he died December 31st, 1972 with exactly 3,000 hits. That is what we think knowledge is. It's an answer on Jeopardy. That's the basic way that we consider what knowledge is. However, the Bible words for knowing are completely different and don't mean observable stats, right? Ours is too wooden and literal and it's like a straitjacket. It's no fun. But in the Bible, it's different. The Bible words for knowing can include information, but in the Bible, knowing is about relationship and experience. You're like, well, what does that mean, Jim? I'll prove it to you. The first time in the Bible any human knows anything is Adam knew Eve in Genesis chapter four. And this is not Adam's cognitive awareness that Eve happens to exist over here because the rest of the verse says Adam knew Eve and she conceived and had a baby, all right? Not only is that relationship and experience, it's intimacy, okay? So the word know in the Bible is not just like, okay, Data awareness. No, 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 it's completely different. Here, here's a good example. <clears throat> Another one from the Old Testament. The prophet Habakkuk, whom you've never read because his name is Habakkuk. Um, he's, he's looking forward <clears throat> to the day of Christ. And he, he, he writes this. He says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. <clears throat> That's the e eternal life thing. And Habakkuk is not saying one day, earth will be filled with people who are aware of the detail that God is glorious. That's not what Habakkuk is saying. <clears throat> he envisions a day when heaven will come to earth and there will be only shared life and intimacy with God, tasting his glory and beauty and worth and happiness and love, more joy than we'll ever know what to do with. <clears throat> and Habakkuk, watch this, he communicates that picture of the future by language of knowing, right? But I actually think that we do do this sometimes in English, and here's what I mean. You know about Tom Brady, but you don't know Tom Brady, <clears throat> okay? If you do, just give me a call. I'd love to hang, okay? You know about Queen Elizabeth because you watch The Crown on Netflix and you're addicted like Sarah Thompson, but you don't know Queen Elizabeth, okay? <clears throat> I know 
I know about Justin Bieber, but if somehow I got his number, let's just say, and I called him up and I was like, Justin, hey man, it's Jim. He would say, sorry, dude, I don't, I don't know who this is. And I would cry and say, but Justin, I just told you, right? <laughs> I'm, you know, it's, it's Jim, remember? This is what I'm talking about. I'm trying to prove to you that knowing in the Bible is not mainly factual, but experiential, right? And further proof of this is that elsewhere in John, we see that the way to get the eternal life thing, here in chapter 17, it's by knowing, but the way to get the eternal life thing elsewhere in John is by believing. This is the most popular verse in the Bible. This is the way that God loved the world, that he gave his only unique son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This believing is about faith and trust and loyalty and dependence. It's a relationship word. And it's the same with knowing. It's meant to be experiential. Wow. So you're saying every act of knowing involves an act of trust. And it's a relationship. <clears throat> Maybe this is why we get so frustrated with the news and social media and the different facts and information thrown at us because we don't know those people. They are on a two-dimensional screen. And often time, the data that we hear is removed from the context of any meaningful relationship. And Jesus is not praying about those kinds of things for us. He is not praying that we would know facts devoid of fellowship. Jesus is praying that we would experience the exact eternal life that God wants and that we would experience it through intimacy with him. <clears throat> the, the life that God wants for you does not primarily come through data and details. It, it doesn't happen by our achieving, our accolades or our accomplishment. Hey God, look what I did. The life God wants for you does not happen by you bringing your resumes before God, trying to impress him. You know why? Because they're just filled with stats about you. Rather, eternal life that we want and need deep in our gut happens through relationship. Maybe this is one of the many reasons why Jesus said, blessed are the poor, because the poor don't have any resumes to bring, and they're less likely to get entangled with the earthly games of status and success. And maybe it's easier for them to focus on relationship. We need, we need to get there. Also, side note, <clears throat> I don't know where to say this in this message, um, but some of you might be thinking, okay, Jim, I'm following you, but your presuppositions are faulty. And what I mean by that is you're using the Bible, and so it's just circular reasoning. And you already said, hey, we should be examining our sources of knowledge. We should be epistemologically <clears throat> curious, right, Jim? Well, I absolutely think that. And uh, if you'd like to have that conversation, shoot me an email. I, I love, 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 love talking about the historicity and reliability of the scriptures. Happy to talk about that. Suggest some books to you from different perspectives. Love it, love it, love it. But I also want to know if that's your train of thought. Uh, the ancient Romans and ancient Jews actually have about a 2,000 year head start on you. Um, they tried to stop the Bible and its message dozens of ways. They were not fans of it. They even killed people who believed in it. And the Bible is the bestseller of all time, and no other book comes close. And first century Roman, uh, Rome and, and Jewish people in the first century, if they had it their way, it wouldn't exist, but they couldn't stop it. They couldn't stop it. <clears throat> My point is this. The Bible is a dependable source for knowing simply because of its history, right? Right? Even if you don't consider yourself a Jesus follower, 
This book is a reliable source to consider life and its meaning and purpose because that's exactly how billions of people for thousands of years have thought about this book. And here at Fellowship Greenville, part of our trust in God is that we believe scripture tells the truth about God and who he is and us and his world. And I know that that's an atrocity to do a 75 second conversation, which should be like 75 books that you have to read, but I couldn't not mention that because we should examine our sources of knowledge. That's a very fair, fair take. <clears throat> All right, we did the eternal life part. We did the knowing part, and now let's talk about the third part. Who should we know? Look at the verse, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So yes, <clears throat> Eternal life is about knowing God, but look at how it's qualified. He's the only true God, which means there seems to be some other kind of lesser gods. Well, where do we get those? We make those up. We go, no, 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 this is my functional king, this is my functional savior, this is my functional God. And we give our time to it, we give our money to it, we give our efforts to it, we give our energy to it. And over time, guess what happens? He's the only true God. Those gods that we set up before ourselves end up being lies, every single one of them. They have lied to us and we have believed them. He is the only true God. And then there's an and at the end of verse three. We're supposed to know the only true God and Jesus Christ that he has sent. Now, if you have been reading John all along and you finally get to chapter 17, this will come as no surprise to you. <laughs> John's message is that this backwoods carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth, is somehow wonderfully and mysteriously God in the flesh. And at the same time, he is the way to God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the supreme way that we answer the question, what does it mean to know God? So the way that our eternity is secured, starting both now and never ending, the way we experience life with God, the only true God is that we have a trusting friendship with Jesus. Now, some of you might go, he's the holy God and king of all that is. Why do you say friendship and be dismissive of it? I'll tell you why. Because sometimes you, you guys, we just overcomplicate it. We overcomplicate it. Jesus wants to have a back and forth relationship with us. Like, I don't have a relationship with Bieber, but the people I do have a relationship with, we're on great speaking terms. <clears throat> if I call them, they know my voice. And they go, hey man, what's up? I talk to them, I hang out with them. There's trust involved. And that's what Jesus wants for us as he prays. He wants us to be on great speaking terms with him and the Father. He wants us to pray and tell him all that we're processing and all that we're feeling and thinking. And then he speaks to us in Holy Scripture. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we're supposed to praise him and plead to him in worship, whether we're thankful or despairing. And then he communicates to us through his Holy Spirit that he has given to us. And he talks to us through his people and through art and through beauty and through music and through creation. So quite simply, a way that we know God is to be on great speaking terms and have a trusting friendship with Jesus. I don't want you to overcomplicate it. This is not science. This is a relationship. This is <clears throat> the knowing part of our verse. My mama's favorite verse is Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him. Literally, the, the Hebrew is, in all your ways, know him. Seek to know him in all of your ways and he'll make your path straight. Jesus is praying for us about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trusting God and seeking to experience him in 
every single corner and crevice of life. And being in this place of relationship with God because of Jesus is the most incredible, loving, peace-giving, forgiving place of grace that you could ever imagine. It doesn't, it doesn't take all the craziness out of life. It just gives us hope that lasts past this life. <clears throat> Esther Meek's definition of knowing is this. Knowing is the responsible human struggle to rely on clues, to focus on a coherent pattern and submit to its reality. So my girl Esther Meek, she gets it, she knows it. She knows that we can't just totally get rid of life's craziness. Life is a struggle. It's all, not always easy. But the reliance that she's talking about is the trusting that causes us to have and experience eternal life. And when we step out in faith, we can more clearly see the coherent patterns of God's faithfulness so that we then continue to submit to him in hope. And our submission is that he knows things more fully and more purely than we ever will. And hope trusts God's good, wise, and all knowledge. That's what hope does. Again, this knowing and believing stuff doesn't take out all the insanity of life, but it gives us an assurance that even the deepest pain can't take away from us. And this is most purely seen in Jesus' own death and resurrection. That's all the proof we need. If death can't stand in the way of Jesus, then surely hope will outlast everything that scares us, right? So <clears throat> what do we need to do with all of this? How do we respond to the truth that the life God wants for us happens by knowing Jesus? So what, what do we need to do about this? <clears throat> Well, to feel the pointedness of this, we did this last week. Let's uh, flip the verse inside out. Sometimes that lets it have a little bit of freshness. So here we go. This is the reversion of, of John 17, three. Here it is. This is eternal death that they only know themselves and not the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Now, hearing it like that is sobering. And when I think about it, inside out like this, and I step back and I consider John 17, three, as it is given to us, um, two responses come to mind. And the first one is for those of us who are followers of Jesus. <clears throat> if that's you, and you know that because of the cross and the empty tomb, only, only life is your inheritance in this world and the next. If you know that knowing God intimately is the only thing on the horizon of your eternity, then why do you still flirt with deathly things as much as you do? Why? Why are you so consumed with the temporal more than the eternal? And I'm talking to me too. Why do, why do we do this? Why do we as Christians endlessly entertain ourselves with the fleeting and the trivial when heaven has come to earth in Jesus? The future has come backward into the present in Jesus. This is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And you know what? We confess that. We say that we believe that. But then we let ridiculous, dumb, silly little things dominate our hearts. Jesus' prayer here is that we would cut ties with worldly intimacies that won't last. That's the holiness he's getting ready to pray about. 
And it breaks my own heart so much when I settle. That's what I do. I settle. Comfort rules my heart. When I settle for the mortal and the mundane, when the immortal and the majestic gave his life for me. It doesn't make any sense to live in life and flirt with death. It's like being at an all-you-can-eat buffet with an empty stomach and the greatest chefs in the world, but you insist on eating a single stale Ritz cracker that you found in the parking lot. Why would you ever do that? That is asinine. So here's what you have to do. Christian, you have to ask yourself, where am I amusing myself with passing trifles that will not last? And how do I need to focus more on Jesus and knowing him? You have to do inventory in your soul. You got to do some work in your heart. Okay, how does, okay, how does knowing God relate to my hobbies? Can my hobbies make me know God more? How does knowing God relate to what I think politically? How can that make me know God more? If I'm trying to know and trust and follow and obey and adore and worship Jesus, how can I think about relationships and family life in a way that makes me know God more? How can I look, hey, how can I look at my budget and get on online to my bank account and how can I spend money in a way that makes me know God more? God, please give us wisdom for how to do that. If eternal life starts now, then that means it needs to get all up in your business, all the way. So, Holy Spirit, please show us what this means. But there's also a second response that comes to mind, and that's for those who aren't believing in Jesus for eternal life. Uh, the implication in this verse is that there is also an eternal death. There's, there's a separation. Or to use Jesus' own words from Matthew, <clears throat> he says, many people will say to me on that day, Lord, I did this really great thing for you, and I did this really great thing for you, and they're gonna try to depend on their resumes for eternal life. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. But the most wonderful thing in the entire universe is the end of verse three. Look, Jesus Christ, <clears throat> whom you have sent. This sending is Jesus coming from heaven to earth and then to the cross. Jesus going to the cross means that he willingly stands in our place to take on the death that we deserve because of our sin. His death is to free us from the bondage of shame and guilt that weigh us down. He, he became the separation that we deserve to live in, that we might be brought close to and know the Father. So when Jesus stretches out his arms to die, the innocent for the guilty, he was making eternal life possible. When he died for us, he made knowing God actually possible and available. And if, if you're here and you don't have a relationship with God because of Jesus, I promise you that is exactly what you were made for. And one of the billions of things that I love about this is that you don't need pomp and circumstance to make a decision to trust and follow Jesus for eternal life. You can do it right now where you Sit. It doesn't matter if you're here or two or if you're watching from home. <clears throat> you can say, Jesus, forgive me for my sin and trying to do life on my own apart from you. Jesus, please give me the life with God that you died to make possible. I'm sick and tired of trusting myself and I wanna trust you right now for life. And guess what? 
He will do it. He promised, and he's good on his word. Not even death can stop him. He will give you the kind of life that he came to make possible. Now, I know that this might seem a little strange, but that's just par for the course for the past year of our existence. Um, If you're making today a decision to trust and follow Jesus, we want to know about it, and we want to encourage you as best as we can. And so if that's something that you just did or something that you want to talk about, here's what we'd love for you to do. Um, If you would get out your phone and text the words first step to 864-234-7033, that would be wonderful and we'll have somebody follow up with you. And if you'd like, we would love to continue a conversation with you about knowing and trusting God because we think it's the most wonderful, incredible decision that you will ever, 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 ever make. Again, if you want to text the word first step to 864-234-7033, that would be awesome. Now, no matter where you are in your life of faith, John's gospel wants to tell us one simple thing this morning. He wants to tell us Jesus is what God is like. Jesus is how we can understand and know God's character and his love. Because of him, Humbly and confidently knowing God is possible. We are not epistemologically left in the dark. There is assurance that is available and it can be had in relationship with the living God who brought heaven to earth in Jesus. Fellowship Greenville, this is the gospel that eternal life has come to us. And in Jesus' death and resurrection, this eternal life can be had and it can be lived and it can be enjoyed not one day in the distant future, but right now. That's really good news, and I hope you believe that. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Spirit, all of our longings are met in you. All of our, all of our fears can fade, and all of our sins, past, present, and future, future, can be forgiven when we trust you and know you. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would stir faith in our midst, in our own hearts, in this community, in this church, in Greenville, that you would make us a people of strong, fervent, happy, humble, hopeful faith so that we might know you and we might make your beauty and your goodness known to the world around us. Please, Holy Spirit, do that in our midst here. Jesus, we love you. You're the best. Amen.